Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Jane Hong. And I'm Tim Sang. And we're your hosts. This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment. Thanks for joining us. Hi, welcome to Centering, the podcast of Fuller's Asian American Center. I'm Jane Hong, a historian of 20th century U.S. immigration and foreign relations. And I'm currently writing a history of Asian American evangelicalism since the 1970s. And I'm Tim Sang, Pacific Area Director of InterVarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. I'm also a historian of American religion with a focus on Asian American Christianity. So today we'll be talking with Dr. Sam George. Dr. George is the Director of Global Diaspora Institute at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicago. He also serves as the global catalyst for diasporas of the Lausanne movement. He is of Asian Indian descent and lives with his wife and two high school boys in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Sam holds degrees in mechanical engineering, business management, and worked in the technology industries for a decade before studying at Fuller and Princeton seminaries. He later completed his PhD um, in the United Kingdom. Sam is author or editor of a dozen books on issues related to family, church, mission, and migration. Welcome, Sam. So good to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jane. I'm glad to join you for your centering episode. I have listened to a few sessions here and there. Great. Uh, but uh, it's a great uh, uh, job that you guys are doing. Uh, grateful for the opportunity to be with you this uh, afternoon. Yes, it's great to have you here. Now, to start us off, I think it'd be good to, to have an overview of Christianity in India. I know this is a long history for the listeners out there. It's been <laughs> about 2,000 years of history of Christianity in, in India. Could you say a little bit as briefly as possible, when, how did Christianity find its way to India? How did it develop? What are its characteristics? Yeah, that's a lot of ground to cover. I'll be brief. Christianity first arrived on the Indian subcontinent through uh, the disciple Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus, who after the Great Commission and the Ascension of Christ, uh, believed to have come to Persia and have come to India. Uh, he reached the shores of India in AD 52, and uh, he planted the churches, uh, evangelized, had miracles, and he was uh, killed in the city of uh, Madras, which is now called Chennai in 1872. So two decades of work, and uh, that is the beginning of Christianity uh, in India, and uh, subsequently struggles, uh, no sustained leadership, no connection with the church in Syria. That's where the kind of the headquarters, the Antiochian church and the Syrian church. Uh, but uh, subsequently in the second century, third century, it continued to establish contact with Christians in the Middle East and that they sustained the work and provided bishops and priests and evangelists, and the work continued. So there's an uninterrupted Christian presence in that part of India uh, for 2,000 years. That's kind of uh, something very unique about Indian Christianity. But subsequently, there is so early apostolic influence, then Syrian uh, Christianity's influence, and then the major next wave was the Portuguese arrival uh, in the end of 15th century, and the European and uh, Catholic influence begin to shape Christianity in, uh, you know, 16th, 17th, and 18th century. And subsequently, it came under British influence, colonial influence, and between the, 
Indian subcontinent was a large uh, part of the uh, British colonial empire. Uh, but also other European sects were there, uh, like the Dutch and the Germans and the French and others uh, also had a share. Um, so they brought in a lot of European influence, Protestant uh, Lutheran, German Lutherans to Scottish uh, Presbyterians to and largely Anglican, British Anglicans. So that shaped Christianity. And then after India became independent in 1947, and there's a kind of a indigenous Indian Christianity that emerged. And uh, both Indian Pentecostalism, evangelical, independent Indian churches, which is contextualized to Indian context. So it's kind of a mix of uh, various Christian influences from around the world. And yet at the same time, very contextualized over the years. Uh, but the Indian uh, Christianity in India is a very small segment. India is a large nation, a large population, 1.3 billion people. And you're talking about official numbers are still 2.5%, 3%. And unofficially, it may be 6 to 8%, around 100 million uh, Christians in India. So that's kind of a broad overview of uh, history and the presence of Christianity in India. Wow, thank you for covering so much ground in such a pithy answer. I know how incredibly difficult that is. I know that from experience. So I really appreciate that. And I'm sure um, there are some follow-up questions we would love to ask you. But for now, I'd like to turn to the history of Indian and broader South Asian immigration to the United States, right? Since we're talking, right, the podcast is about Asian America. So I know a lot of the migration happens after 1965 and the passage of the 1965 Immigration Act. But, you know, there are a few thousand Indians who come to America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, before World War II. And maybe I'll just say a few things about this early migration and then ask you about the post-65 migration. I know for this early period, when we think about early Indian immigrants, mostly we're talking about folks of the Sikh faith um, from the Punjab region, largely. Although, you know, so these early migrants, many of them work as farmers, places like California, places across the U.S. West. From my research, I know there are a smaller number of Muslims who also migrate during this period. And then just a handful of Hindu, um, oftentimes students or elites um, who come to study at U.S. universities. So I know I've, I've studied early Indians in places like New York City, and then like cities across the Midwest, a lot of college towns. And I also know for Indians, right, they begin migrating in larger numbers, because there is the need for labor in the United States, and Chinese and Japanese are, they're excluded, workers are excluded uh, by 1907. And so this creates kind of an opportunity for other Asian groups to, to come to the United States. But then, as more Indians arrive, similar kind of anti-Asian exclusionists begin lobbying Congress to also stop the, the entry of what they called, quote, the tide of turbans, right, um, coming in across the West Coast. And the last two things I'll say is, so Indians come under exclusion in 1917. And the 1917 Immigration Act, it actually, it bars all of Asia from immigrating, but the law actually targets Indians in particular. So it was passed mm -hmm. largely to stop Indians from migrating. Um, and I know that you know, this early period, many of these Indians are involved in the Indian independence movement, fighting for independence from Great Britain. And so that also becomes part of the story. And that's kind of what I look like. That's what I look at in my book. So I look at kind of campaigns to end Asian exclusion, to end Indian exclusion during the 1940s, and how they become entangled with Indian independence movements, so diasporic movements. So that early period, I feel like the smaller population, and I feel like it's a lesser known history, but I know there aren't many Christians. From what I've seen, there are not many Christians in these earlier waves. So I wonder if you could tell us briefly about 
the history of more recent Indian and broader South Asian immigration after 1965? And then were there many Christians among these post-65? Thank you for covering that. Yeah, early part of the history is uh, often most uh, recent immigrants uh, unaware of that early. But even going back, uh, even before even the Sikhs and the turban invasion, uh, Hindu, there is also a historical record of gentlemen coming by ship arriving in Boston in 1792. He's believed to be the first Indian to us in the uh, history of a priest, a pastor, traveler, uh, missionary, uh, who knows uh, biography, autobiography with the mention of an Indian gentleman arriving. So he may be the first Indian to arrive, and he visited a church, And uh, but I think it took another 200 some years for recruitment of laborers uh, that happened, uh, that began, um, say, 19, um, 1890s and 1880s. Wow. And uh, of course, uh, there were very uh, few Christians among them, uh, but many of them were men, and many of them also married Mexicans, and so this inter- by virtue of intermarriage, they have become Catholics. Now, there are third, fourth generation Sikhs who are Catholics, you know, um, uh, largely from the Mexican influence. And some of them have embraced Christianity now, uh, which is in the third, fourth generation, uh, some of the Sikhs in, uh, in the California region. But much of the Indian American story is the post-1965. Uh, there are elites who have come and gone, you know, freedom struggles, uh, era 40s and India's independence was in 1947. So pre-independent India, uh, the larger Indian subcontinent, so that is the South Asian region, so India and neighboring uh, seven countries, uh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, Maldives, and uh, that region got divided into several countries. And so post-47 migration, my own mother-in-law flew to London uh, from India and from sailed from London to uh, New York City, and uh, she arrived here in uh, 56. Uh, so those stories are there, but many of them came and studied and then went back. But uh, Indians uh, largely are migrant-resistant people, and it comes from the Hindu scriptures, because Hindu scriptures has uh, clear structure, you know, laws and prohibitions against uh, traveling over water, uh, what is called as Kalapani, crossing black waters. And uh, you lose your caste status, you are demoted to the lowest category, and uh, you have uh, cleansing rituals. If you ever return, you have to do certain purification rituals in order to reinstate it back in, into the community. And uh, those uh, lowermost castes were forcefully taken as indentured laborers, British uh, colonial plantations all over the world. And so in uh, 1880, when you know slavery was abolished, several Indians were brought to what is called West Indies, the Caribbean islands and Guyana and Suriname. So there were a large uh, Indian community in uh, Central America and South America. And many of them also begin to migrate uh, upward through the Latin American uh, uh, inflection into North America. Many of them have become Christians. So that's the other side of the early migrant mm-hmm. story. They did not come directly from India, but came via other plantation settlements. But yeah, post-65, you know, um, some of the early migrants who came largely for, you know, professional appeals. Uh, there was a healthcare crisis here in America. So people largely in the medical field, 
nurses and the large number of people who pursued these fields of studies were Christians in India. And uh, missionaries have established medical institutions and nursing schools. They were trained in these Christian schools. And when the opportunity came in 1965, and many of them, uh, you know, landed up and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, taking went to the cities and came to America pursuing their careers. So there's a large share in the first wave, 60s and 70s, almost 70% of the community were Christians, um, you know, two-thirds and above were Christians. So because they were nursing and healthcare and doctors and professionals and educated people. So education had come to India through uh, medical and missionary enterprise and also um, education and healthcare. And the Christians were good to uh, take advantage of that and then come to America. So that's the kind of the early wave of uh, Indian migration to the U.S. No, this is great. And I think the earlier, the piece that you mentioned about Punjabi Sikh men who married Mexican women, I mean, that's an incredibly fascinating story. There's one anthropologist, Karen Leonard, who has written a number of books. Right. She's like the expert on that particular topic. It's something that whenever I teach it, students are always just completely captivated by that story. It's so unexpected. So thank you for sharing. And there's a faith dimension too. You know, many of them embrace Catholic faith. Yeah. Uh, because uh, there is also a revival that breaks out in early 20th century in Punjab, and many become Christians there. Yeah. And uh, they were much more open to embracing Christianity. But they experienced not the white Christianity, European Christianity, they accepted a Mexican Christianity. Wow, that, <laughs> that is interesting. That, that's the other angle. Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. <laughs> wow. Well, Sam, I, I'm just just uh, want to hear more. So my question is sort of to dig in a little deeper. Can you share with us some past uh, Indian American Christians we ought to know about? Now, and I'm thinking as far back as independence, was there was there some kind of convergence? Were there Indian Christians who were involved with the the anti-colonial movement, or, or or maybe something else that they did. Can you share share with us a few examples? Yeah, I mean, you know, Indian uh, Christians were quite involved because primarily, you know, the freedom struggle uh, against the British colonial um, occupation of Indian subcontinent was led by Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi became the father of the nation. Gandhi had very close ties with Christians, so he brought in, and there were a lot of uh, local Indian Christians have joined the freedom struggle. And so there are, you know, several stalwarts of, you know, Christianity in the South and North and East and West. Uh, They were part of the struggle and uh, they were involved, um, you know, uh, fighting against oppression. And there were many British missionaries who were on the side of Indians, Christians and Indians at large in uh, fighting against the oppression, uh, colonial oppression. Uh, So that's a nice story there. So, but I think uh, there was also the uh, uh, Indian American uh, movement here that arose to fight against the British occupiers. So that's the another angle. There was many, both in Canada and the U.S. Uh, Canada was, of course, in a lot more British influence at that time. Uh, but especially in California, the Gaddar movement and uh, their opposition and uh, Rabindranath Tagore, he was a Nobel laureate in 1917, and he came and toured across America. Uh, Vivekananda, who came and gave a great speech in the uh, World Parliament of Religion here in Chicago in 1893, and uh, subsequently created the Vedanta movement, which is a kind of a religious renaissance within Hinduism. And all of them were forces from North America 
who is indirectly influencing the fight against the British in India and its independence. That is totally fascinating. I actually didn't know that. So I'm, I'm going to follow up with you, Sam, if you can share with me the name so I can uh, dig in. Another question just popped up as you were sharing about uh, these uh, Asian and Indian Christians who are involved with um, fighting the freedom struggle. There's a lot that's said about how Martin Luther King Jr. gained a lot of his strategies and tactics around resistance and civil rights from Gandhi. I wonder if you had thought about the Indian side of that equation. Was there much uh, record of, of African-American and Indian uh, engagement with one another around, let's say, colonialism in, uh, in the world and in race in the United States? Oh, uh, absolutely. And I think there is that connection. I mean, that's, you know, where these global connections really come into play. I was in uh, 2017 in South Africa. We brought together Indian diaspora leaders from some 40 countries to mark the end of kind of what we call the indentia labor system. Uh, indentia labor system, South Africa was one of the big uh, settlements of Indian community indentia laborers uh, who were brought from southern India mostly. And um, Gandhi had gone to England, studied law, become a barrister, returned back to India. Uh, when he comes back to India, his own community won't accept him because he has traveled over waters. His autobiography, he's fascinating. He, talks, he becomes an outcast. Uh, he, you know, his brother takes him to a river nearby, sacred rivers, and bathes him, uh, thinking that he has to be cleansed and purified. Only then he can go back to his hometown. Uh, this kind of like Gandhi himself was so critical of this law within Hinduism because he has become dirty or polluted because he traveled over water and sailed to England. And so he was just kind of, so, so he, you know, acceptance, finding. For him, he was a young uh, law graduate. He was just looking for a job and uh, sustaining his family. And then somebody hired him and takes him to South Africa. And uh, South Africa, he's a British-trained lawyer, and, uh, but he was mistreated as a black man. And uh, then he finds a loophole within the British legal system and fights against the British uh, oppression uh, against Indians first uh, in South Africa. And then subsequently he goes back, you know, kind of he finds this nonviolent ahimsa, the notion and how do you fight against colonial oppressors? And he returns back to India and gives uh, leadership to the freedom struggle and gains India's independence on a moral ground. Wow, that's amazing. And so this attracted uh, the racial tension here in America. So especially in you know, 20s, 30s, and 40s. And so many, many African-American leaders traveled, established connections, started reading Gandhi's writings, all of that influence here. And, but then in 2017, with all these Indian leaders from around the world uh, meeting in South Africa, and I was telling the story about how the India's freedom struggle, India's vision for independence, of course, it fought on the Indian soil, but it was conceived and tested here in South Africa and uh, in Durban, South Africa, uh, where Gandhi was a lawyer. And uh, then we Indian Americans talk about 1965 and immigration law coming here, uh, but they don't understand the story of what happened with the civil rights here and how the India's freedom struggle and fight against oppression uh, and racial discrimination uh, begin to influence American struggle for civil rights, uh, civil rights movement here. And, you know, Kennedy's vision and India's and America's immigration policy were shaped in many ways as a result of that. And then, you know, Indians were one of the beneficiaries of the 1965 immigration law. And over the last 65 years or so, we have become a 5 million strong, uh, the most educated, wealthiest, 
uh, ethnic immigrant group in America, uh, to the extent that we have uh, a second generation, um, half Indian American is now the vice president of this country. Uh, who could have imagined uh, this could happen over the last 55 years? speak more specifically about Indian Americans. Uh, South Asia is the largest space because now South Asia is comprised of many nations and, you know, politics and uh, faith aspect is, you know, more complicated. So Indians, what, uh, just crossed 5 million now. And out of that, uh, nearly 50% are Hindu. And uh, Christians is only comprised of 20%. And so that's kind of close to a million uh, Christians. Uh, They are spread over 1,500 churches across the country. We just completed a research recently uh, surveying uh, what happened to Indian. So the first church was established in 1967. So last 52 years, what has happened? And so we found 1,500 churches across the country, some million Christians of various denomination, language, and all of that. So it's kind of spread over. There are Indian churches in every state. You know, second generation churches are now emerging strong. And, um, you know, men, women, uh, women leadership is, you know, very small. Uh, nevertheless, there are uh, quite a few Anglican, Lutheran, and uh, Methodist circles, uh, several South Asian uh, ministers and pastors. For Indian American, the first wave, you know, 60s, 70s, healthcare, 80s, 90s, in uh, early 80s, uh, there was uh, an Indian American who gets a Nobel Prize in science. And uh, that began to uh, make American universities to go after Indian universities and colleges to recruit students uh, for their graduate studies. So my wife and I are part of that higher education wave that brought uh, many, many uh, in the 1980s and uh, 80s and 90s to America. Um, So they become masters, PhDs. And uh, so that's one reason we have highly educated populace in the Indian American that are more MDs and PhDs and, and uh, graduate degrees in the Indian community than any other community. Uh, because by virtue of the policy of who comes to America, one, and then particularly the universities targeting the uh, educational sector has been a policy in the 80s. And then subsequently, the 90, the Y2K phenomena are needing you know, uh, tons and tons of people to manage their uh, technology crisis, brought in people and the food India's uh, prowess in the field of technology and computer technology, in particular software professionals. So in the last two decades, we have literally seen our population double, uh, you know, decade to decade. So it's a substantial you know, growth and, you know, and uh, they are also very involved in politics in India and politics here. Uh, largely, they are Democrats. Uh, but they're also wealthy and well-to-do community. And so some of them are Republicans. They are divided. They have contests. Many of them are. We have a record number of people standing in election and pursuing political offices this last election and in the recent years. So we have several, you know, senators and, I mean, congressmen, both at the state level, federal, and we are seeing uh, that momentum. And, uh, of course, Indian community is really proud of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, because of our Indian roots. Uh, when the election was going on in her uh, native ancestral, native land, temples had erected uh, uh, pictures of her and they were praying that uh, she will win the election. So that's a level of commitment. And, you know, so, but at the same time, there are some in the Indian community think she's only half Indian. 
she is not really a full indian she is uh, her father's caribbean you know uh, so that uh, and being a black father has those tension uh, she is not just an indian american but she is also you know a black american uh, you know caribbean american and you know so that's the tension then some in indian circles feel that um she is opportunistic she is a christian she is not really a hindu christian thing she is hindu hindu thing she is christian uh, nobody really owns her wow um, you know can identify with her uh, yeah. both her ethnic and her religious and uh, you know political career so kind of a, you know some people are divided uh, but over overall um, especially you know parents of young girls you know point to her look at her you know i mean you can also become anything in this country so it's an aspirational factor that uh, of course you know i mean a uh, pressure on uh, in uh, kids in indian american homes uh, you know just like tiger moms and you know, there's a lot of lot of pressure uh, because they are educated in a successful community and so now they all point to you know you should pursue political career like kamala harris <laughs> yeah there was a cartoon Mm-hmm. a cartoon in the indian newspaper i believe i don't know where somebody sent it sent it to me by you know whatsapp and uh, so a father is you know i mean a, a child is uh, reading the um, the newspaper article about you know the new vice president and uh, the the father or grandfather or, you know looks up on that the cartoon and saying why only a vice president why not a president so this is like a child comes home with a grade he said why why a why not a plus where did you lose that three marks when you got 97 out of 100 you know so the same attitude of <laughs> same attitude of, why only a vice president why not a president so that's the pressure on indian kids now <laughs> oh no she's the new she's the new pinnacle that everyone has to strive towards <laughs> and maybe this is a good question i had a you know while while you were speaking about just the different categories identity categories right and the ways that these groups are defined it made me wonder about well there's two things the first is as you mentioned and you know south asia south asian american is such a huge category in terms of who it encompasses so it's as you said indian americans bangladeshi americans bhutanese burmese nepalese pakistani sri lankan right so there are many many groups so one question i had was just kind of how do indian americans kind of negotiate that category right being kind of lumped into south asian american so on the one hand and on the other hand um a question that tim and i have been exploring with other guests as well is i mean we know the term asian america itself is you know it's it's a contested term it could be problematic at times and i know that for some indian americans south asian americans they don't necessarily identify with that you know category in the same way that maybe east asian americans do so there's also that kind of tension so i wonder if you can kind of speak to where indian americans fit within those categories from kind of from your view so south asian american on the one hand and then just asian american more broadly on the other yeah you know all kind of you know um, categories and metaphors are always complicated and problematic my doctoral studies was in england and uh, i spend a fair amount of time these days in england and european context uh, with my work with luzon and especially my recent engagement with uh, global refugee crisis but when in england when they say british asians we often refer to indians because that's the dominant group and a long history of uh, indian migration far beyond uh, you know east asians and so i often fought there if you call yourself asian uh, please include rest of asia uh, not just indians 
Uh, when I came to America, I was in the West Coast. They often say Asian Americans for East Asians. And of course, I had uh, come here from Hong Kong and I was in Singapore and I had lots of Chinese and East Asian friends. So they said, oh, you know, if you are in America, talk about Asian American, you need to include, you know, Southeast Asian and East Asians and West Asians and Central Asians. And only then you are truly Asian. And I think, you know, those are challenges. Uh, you know, South Asia is a category nobody uses in India. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, pol- uh, it's a political categorization, CIA to Americans, different yeah. departments, you know, issues, you know, they can see this stuff. Into several different countries, they have nothing to do with each other. Right. And India has been increasingly distancing itself from Pakistani and Pakistani Americans uh, because of the politics there. Uh, they don't want to be clubbed together with the region. And uh, of course, South Asian regional cooperation, economic cooperation was one big attempt. Uh, economically bringing the region together, but that did not have pan out. Uh, Pakistan is much more aligned with China now. Sri Lanka has created a port in Sri Lanka. Uh, all of that has, you know, kind of created, uh, broken down the South Asia as a region. And India wants to distinguish itself as Indian American uh, or Indians in America and in Indian India. But in, in America, you know, Indians get confused with native Indians, all of that. And so then 80s onwards, U.S. census came out with this category called Asian Indian. And so now we call ourselves as Asian Indian Americans, AIA. And uh, so that's kind of the, uh, but, you know, identity issue is you know, complicated. Uh, my first book was called Coconut Generation. I was a youth pastor in Philadelphia uh, working with Indian Americans, uh, brown on the outside, white on the inside, and we called them coconuts. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a sociologist in LA, UCLA, who in a dissertation who coined it. And then I brought it the title of the book and it's become popular. And even now, Coconut is like my middle name now. Uh, people <laughs> call me the Coconut Guy. Yeah, because you write a book about identity and I lose my own identity as a result, you know. So it's kind of an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. Uh, but yeah, largely we consider ourselves as, you know, kind of Indian. And, but then again, Indian sub-region. You know, every India, every, you know, we speak so many languages, so many different countries, different. India is never a one country. It is many countries, you know, put together and all of that complication. So the language as you speak, uh, even within the language, what region of the country and your faith background, uh, Hinduism is also very broad category because in Hinduism is of many, many different flavors and languages and different regions of the country. Um, Some 200 temples across the country, I'm talking about two and a half million people. They all have different sense of their spirituality. And remember, anybody who's come here, they are all polluted uh, from the those who are holding the fort back in India. And uh, because they think they went out of the country. And so you're supposed to live and die in a place close to where you're born and your native land. Because gods are territorial, speaking a little more theologically. Uh, understanding of Hinduism is a geographically imprisoned religion. And uh, it's centered in one place. All the holy land and holy waters and sacred places of pilgrimage is all in India. So if you're far from it, you're far away from the incarnation powers of the river Ganges. Or the places that you're born, you're polluted now. Malachas, um, the concept of Hindu theology. And uh, you are being demoted in your caste. You're oppressed. You're, you know, I mean, you're gone far away. There's no redemption for you. And you are unclean and polluted. So that's the Hindu nature of uh, having crossed the waters. And we all have polluted. Uh, but, you know, in the, from the Christian theology perspective, saying we were all fallen short of glory, glory of God. And we all have sinned. And we all need a savior. And the idea that in Hindu theology is, if gods are territorial, 
if you go beyond that territory you are supposed to find the god in the new place that you are right and uh, be committed to that god so going outside of the holy land you know holy land of the indian sacred bhumi uh, sacred land punya bhumi they call so out of outside the bounds of the local native land uh, you are impure you are supposed to find the gods in the new land and be devoted to that god and but the christian god has no center christianity has no center islam is also centered uh, in mecca uh, because we turn towards mecca and pray we do pilgrimages uh, you know islam requires you to do pilgrimage to mecca in your lifetime and the scripture is not translatable you cannot translate uh, yeah, um, islamic scripture christianity is a translatable mm-hmm. it is a missionary faith it is a mobile faith i see and uh, because god uh one whom we worship is alive and is living and is moving about and if he is a moving person we also move uh, because what i call as a mother's day a move of god and uh, we are created to move and migration is much more consistent with christian understanding and theology of a universal god and uh, finding our allegiance to that god in the person of jesus christ No I I can hear your Lazan movement. I I I hear it coming uh I hear in what you're saying. And I think you know you really taught me a lot right there because um I don't think I knew a lot about Hindu views of migration it, itself like as a process. So that's actually I think I'm guessing that a lot of folks actually don't know much about that history and and probably haven't really thought much about how that might have shaped Indian migration uh, to the United States. But the last thing I'll say is just I I was really struck by just how you know the extent to which the identities and the categories as you mentioned they are oftentimes imposed right and i think even the the category asiatic in the us context right that's a legal category um that you know i've talked about before defined by exclusion so it is interesting to kind of see how different groups negotiate the identities the categories the labels that are oftentimes imposed right upon them by other people so you know thank you for sharing that history i think i think tim has our last question before we wrap up well sam Let's look at the Indian Church in America again. What are some of the issues that you think are emerging and what do you think the future of Asian Indian Christianity will look like? Yeah, I think uh, you know it's um, really very you know uh, very very crucial juncture 52 years in the making of Indian American Christianity or 1500 churches uh, of all language and all kind of flavors and colors. and that's a very very uh, dynamic uh, happening place i would say i think a couple of things uh, that are really stands out one is generational transition uh, the early immigrants who came and established churches in the 70s and 80s we are seeing a strong second generation movement arise and uh, many of them much like the rest of the asian american phenomena kind of the silent exodus phenomena is happening and um, our study found uh, close to 80% of Uh, second generation indian americans are leaving the church of their parents and uh, many of them are joining mainstream uh, american evangelical multi ethnic churches many of them are starting their own south asian or pan asian churches and uh, leading and planting new churches um, it's kind of a really really exciting time to see what god would do but uh, much of the action for the indian american is in the east coast uh, much like uh, you know california was the gateway for east asians Uh, the indian american um, migration and the phenomena uh, came through the uh, new york uh, you know eastern uh, coast so i think you know so we seeing uh, new york uh, new jersey philadelphia strong movements of indian american christianity and church presence 
So that's kind of one, the whole second generation. Second, I would say the larger Hindu, Jain, Sikh community, we are seeing substantial conversion. And many who are tested and, you know, found uh, uh, their ancestral faith wanting. And whether some of the American evangelical churches, Asian churches, and even African immigrant churches have been quite effective in reaching uh, Indian community. And so that we are seeing uh, quite a bit of response to the gospel uh, from the larger immigrant Christians from other parts of the world, as well as, you know, American evangelical community. And so conversion, uh, that's an interesting phenomenon to watch out. Uh, but sometimes when they uh, respond to the gospel, either through media or some other sources or their own investigation, searching for the truth, uh, they come to know, but they have no place for them to be discipled and, you know, a church and a community to belong to. Uh, they come to Indian Christians, you know, they think, you know, here's an Hindu young man who has uh, claimed that he has become a Christian, but he doesn't belong here. And, uh, but he goes to a white American church, you know, and they don't know, you know, the unique struggles that he's facing. Uh, he goes to some other communities, needing a place for them to nurture their faith and develop their faith. Uh, that remains a challenge. Then the third big phenomenon is immigration is continuing. Um, I think uh, the strong presence of the Indians in the tech industry and the American economy and at this juncture is needs for trained technical help. And I think we'll see another decade of uh, strong immigration. I mean, 2020 reports haven't come, uh, but we have seen 2010 to 2020 uh, substantial increase in immigration and large share of the H-1B. All of that has come from Indian tech industry. And I say, you know, 100 years ago, uh, there was a saying about the you know, British uh, colonial presence. They said the sun never sets on the British Empire because British were there everywhere. And so now I say sun never sets on the Indian diaspora because Indians are the most dispersed diaspora all over the world. And now I extended the saying to say include, uh, you will find the sun never sets on the diaspora because you will find an Indian behind a computer. Wherever you can find a computer, you'll find an Indian. So computers are literally everywhere, and you'll find an Indian everywhere. I think we'll continue to see strong immigration. And uh, when they come, and large number of them are Christians, or they are open to Christianity, unlike the earlier generation who tried to hold on to, and many of them are trying to escape from the shackles of religious intolerance and oppression and caste. Recently, in a big tech company in the California, we have seen the caste issues come up and oppression by the upper caste in the American context. So they're fighting for the equality and, and uh, equity, fighting against the caste oppression and uh, all the things that stifle uh, their growth and uh, education. Uh, they are embracing opportunities and American values and Christian values. And they're also open to exploring faith uh, in the American shore. Um, so I think in a church at large, Asian church and American church and uh, amazing opportunity to engage Indians here, uh, those who are going to arrive, uh, who have just arrived or about to arrive uh, in these coming years. And then the second, third generation phenomena of the early Christians and nurturing those who have already embraced Christianity uh, in the last 10, 20 years uh, here in America. Um, so these are some exciting opportunities and challenges before the community, uh, building bridges with the larger Asian community, Chinese and Koreans. Uh, Koreans have done exceptionally 5,000 plus churches, Chinese with some 1,200 churches. And so what can we do as uh, fellow Asians across our particular nationality or region or, you know, Confucius ethics to uh, Hindu uh, ethics and understanding our larger community as Asian American Christians and build some bridges. Uh, collaborate and work together on uh, avenues 
uh, to reach our fellow Asians uh, here in America for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Lord's, uh, God's church and God's work. No, thank you for that. Thank you so much, Sam. The sun never sets on the Indian diaspora. I'm going to keep that in mind um, going forward. And some of the issues that you outlined, I'm going to be following those. I wasn't aware of some of the issues you mentioned, but I'm going to be keeping track of what's happening in the future. Sam, thank you so much for giving us your time and your insight into Indian Americans. We wish you God's richest blessings in your future endeavors. Thank you very much, Jane. And I really appreciate you and uh, Tim and uh, all that uh, Asian American Center is doing. And uh, Jason, thank you. And uh, continue to yeah look for a couple of my books that might help you to unpack some of these ideas that we talked about. Uh, Diaspora Christianity in plural. Yeah, that talks about South Asian Christians around the world. And second book is Desi Diaspora, uh, about Indian ministries uh, among Indian diaspora. Uh, that may be some helpful resources to explore further. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. You can listen to Centering episodes at soundcloud.com backslash Centering Podcast or your favorite podcast app. Go in peace and remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are. Mm -hmm.